Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. That was huge for me was starting the charity and visiting the Amazon and learning from remote communities who live life in the moment, in the present moment, rather than having a script to life. And so being in the Amazon and very lucky to spend time with the natural community in the heart of the Ecuadorian part of the forest and being in Burkina Faso in West Africa with the Moshi communities and really learning from them, that just humbles humbled me because I realized wow. all of a sudden I wasn't as different or as special or as important as I thought I was. And that started my spiritual journey to understand that I actually am very insignificant. I'd love to welcome my new friend and our guest to the show today, Mr. Craig Goldblatt, all the way over from the UK and England. Craig, great to see you today, my friend. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm very well, Matt. Thank you so much for inviting me through Gina Gardner to be with you today. I'm looking forward to it. So I really appreciate your time. No, well, well, likewise, I appreciate yours, Craig. And I've done some research here and I find the things that I'm seeing online fascinating and I'd love to dive right in. The first thing I saw when I put your name here and my first filter is to go to LinkedIn and I go and type someone's name into LinkedIn. And the first thing I saw with you is it says a belief archaeologist and goal digger. <laughs> and I loved it, because that is like so unique and cool. And I'm wondering, what is a belief archaeologist and gold digger? What does that mean to you, Craig? So in my early years of working in emotional needs psychology about 20 years ago, Matt, I came across, as so many of us have within the industry, I came across neuro-linguistic programming. And through that, I was taught by many great teachers, different processes and systems as to how to look at our intention, our emotional legacy, our purpose, how we meet our different needs in life and who we are and our talents. And with that, I started realizing over the years that I've been in this field of work, that the foundation of the quality of our life is all about what we believe to be true, our beliefs. And so without a set of empowering beliefs, if you like, we are fragile and we're vulnerable in a negative way. So my work is underpinned by supporting people to look at their level of empowering beliefs. Of course, a friend of our beliefs is what we call in the UK beliefs and values. So they're very close friends, our beliefs and values, but our beliefs, our rules, our standards are everything. And so to give you an example of that, if I believe that I'm not good enough, or if I believe I can't do something, or if I believe I don't deserve success, or even more difficult, I don't believe that I deserve to have a life. Those are all beliefs that will cause us to be able to be stuck and unrewarded 
and depressed and have a difficult life. And so our beliefs are the foundations of the quality of our internal world. And on the other side of that coin, when I believe that everything's possible, that everybody does the best they can with the resources that they have, that life is magical, that I can live a life almost invariably without external judgment, that the person with the most flexibility has the most power, that I have magical qualities within me as does everybody else that I surround my life with, and that human beings and their endeavor to be able to create is omnipotent, is all-powerful. If I have a set of positive beliefs like that, everything and anything is possible. Human endeavor over the last hundred years has been extraordinary. And that's mainly based on people's ability to be able to believe. I'm aligned with what you're sharing. The first thing I thought when you said NLP is I first thought of the very first firewalk that I ever did with Tony Robbins back in the day. That was the first thought. And then you kept going and beliefs and values are everything. So I'm wondering from your perspective, when someone has the underpinnings of that first set of beliefs you shared, that I'm not enough, or I don't deserve this. When they have that foundation, or the beliefs are challenged, I would say, that are leading to a depression, leading to sulking, or leading to what we might call a negative emotion, or just an overall attitude, a challenged attitude. If those are the underpinned beliefs, then how do we even get started in helping to shift those beliefs, Craig? So I don't profess to be a neuroscientist, and I've studied some neuroscience. So the reason why I share that I don't profess to be a neuroscientist is there's many people listening to this podcast that I'm sure know so much more about our neurology than I do. Allow me to share this, Matt, because with my clients, I've changed the way I look at as to how to shift our belief system. Is The first thing that I'd like to say is we're made of cells. And I believe in our bodies, we have round about 30 trillion cells. Each cell in our body contains atoms. And in those atoms are subatomic particles, packets of energy. And so we are one big ball of energy. We're hugely complex and very, very high functioning as an animal. We're enormously high functioning. And yet, the other side of that coin is that we're incredibly simple in the way that we are built of one thing, which is energy. Around that energy is a number of chemicals. We're also built of chemistry around those atoms. And so our chemistry allows us to be able to feel. And what I understand to be true is that I've created in my work what I call a circle of belief, how we change beliefs. And so the first step to understanding how we change a belief is to understand that we're constantly evolving. Every single one of us has a path of evolution that stretches back at least 200,000 years. And so we bring into this world a blueprint inside our body from our parents and great-grandparents and the ancestors that came before them. Once we're born in the human form, we are constantly evolving at a cellular level. So Everything that happens to us is stored inside our body in some way. And so the first thing is to understand that we're evolving. And once we understand that, there are some basic principles that I feel that we need to take on board in each and every day, if you like, to be able to shift our beliefs. So step one is to understand that we are always changing. And that's a very positive thing. And we're always growing as a human being. Our map of the world is always growing and developing. 
once we understand our evolution, what we can do is we can be aware of our breath and we can be aware of a daily practice that we build into our lives through breath and through meditation and through movement to be able to start priming ourselves to the second step of creating an empowering belief. So the first is to understand that we are evolving. Once we understand that, we can put a daily practice in place. That daily practice leads us first thing in the morning to be able to allow us to be aware of the second step, which is how we experience life. And we experience life, I believe, through our sensory capacity. And so what that means is everything that we see, hear, feel, taste, and smell gives us a new experience internally. And so the second thing is to understand that we, to a degree, are in control of our experiences. In order to impact our experiences, like Anthony Robbins taught both of us a couple of decades ago, is how do we impact the quality of our experience in our life? We can't impact all of it because we have traumas and we walk into difficulty. And as a human being, we're having all sorts of experiences. But we can impact what that experience means. So the first step about changing our beliefs through our experiences, who we, of course, spend our life with is who we will become. So if we want to change our beliefs, we need to change our peer group. If we want to change our beliefs, we need to change how we move and experience our body differently. If we want to change our beliefs, we need to change what we read on a daily basis. And that changes our sensory experience. So those are three huge ways that we can change our experience in the moment. The first is change our beliefs is to change our peer group. To change our beliefs means to change how we move our body. To change our beliefs means to change what we read. The first step is to understand evolution. And in between our first and second step is we can set up our day in a powerful way by how we breathe and how we meditate. And once we've set our day up throughout each and every day, we need to be aware of who we spend time with, how we move each and every day, and what we read each and every day. And through those major pillars of experience, that then allows us, Matt, to be able to bridge the gap between our experience and our thoughts. So the step three is what we think about. In between that very experience and our thought is an opportunity for us to be able to do three more things. Is this too much information or is this okay? It is like drinking from a fire hose and I'm getting soaked and I love it. So please keep going. This okay, is great. Because I'm is great. very aware I'm <laughs> I'm very aware, Matt, this is a lot of information. But if I can summarize it at the end, but tell me if it's too much. Oh, not at all. Not at all. I believe this audience is an audience that's thirsty for deep thought and process. So please continue. Step one is evolution. Step one is experience and how we live our life. Step three is our thoughts, because every experience that we have leads to a thought. So in between experience and thought, I'd like our audience, please, to be thinking about the following. What changes our thoughts, what impacts our thoughts after we've had an experience? Number one is to have a childlike curiosity as to what we've just experienced. Because when we're an adult, we become conditioned. We become boring and inflexible in our thinking. A child takes an experience that they've just had, bad or good, and they're curious about it and they learn from it. 
and they explore it and they imagine new things based on that experience they've just had. And Einstein said, imagination is more powerful than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. When we've had a bad experience, like we've just had an argument with somebody, or we've just had an aggressive meeting with somebody, or we've just split up with somebody, or we've just lost a lot of money, our curiosity as to what opportunities there are in that experience come from our childlike imagination and energy. So they said in the poem, if we can treat our triumph and disaster the same, then we own the world. In other words, when we've had that experience, before we create a conditioned thought, we need to sit down or move after that experience and say, what could that mean? What do I need to learn from that? Or who else can I involve in making this better? We need to have a childlike curiosity. That's the first thing in between an experience and a thought that allows us. The second is to be able to create a level of flexibility to dream about what this could mean for me. Rather than just saying, that person's just hurt me, they're an arsehole or they're a horrible person. Once we've had the experience, the first thing is to imagine and be childlike with it and have a bit of fun with it or see a silver lining in it. The second is to be able to say, okay, there must be different choices here. There must be different ways that I can look at this. And so the first is imagination. The second is flexibility. The third, again, is to be able to ask myself better quality questions to say, how is this possible? How can I change this? How can I grow through this? And those three things then affect the quality of our thoughts. Then we have a thought, and that thought in neuroscience creates a neuropathway in our brain. And if we have that thought over and over again, the pathway thickens, and what happens is we create new learning cells, neurons come and play on that thought and give that thought meaning over the whole of the day. And if, Matt, we start to have that thought 20, 30, 40, 50 times, then guess what that thought becomes? It becomes a belief. We go from evolution to experience to thought, and then that thought starts to become a belief. What we need to do and understand is that once we've had these thoughts, is to be able to ask high quality questions about that thought and to be able to create a values-based feedback system when we're having that thought to say, is this serving me? Is this thought serving me? Am I being gentle on myself? How is this meeting the quality of my values? Who else do I need to be with and talk this through with in order to be able to change this belief? That's the first thing. The second thing is what changes between our thoughts and our beliefs is two things. What changes our belief system is intensity or trauma. So when we're having a thought over and over again, when we're over 35 years of age, what can change a thought is intensity or trauma. We don't want trauma, but what trauma does is it lets off a firework in our brain, if you like, that changes the map in our mind. So when you often see people, unfortunately, that have a heart attack, there's a lot that goes on, of course, in our bodies, more than I am intelligent enough to know. There's so much that goes on. But what I do understand to be true is when we have a traumatic experience, we are flooded with certain chemicals and we have a traumatic experience in our brain 
throws everything up in the air and allows things to land differently. So when a rugby player has a heart attack that's been eating bacon and sausage sandwiches all their life, all of a sudden that trauma allows them to change their diet. And that's because there's been an explosion in their brain that recalibrates the way that we think. And so trauma can do it for us, but so can intensity. So in between our thoughts and our beliefs, if we're stuck in a thought, the way that we can change our beliefs in that moment is a new intense experience to go back to experience and have a deep, intense experience. And so when we're having a thought, if we're then given an amazing hug or we're then kiss somebody dearly, or we make love passionately, or we go to a new place like the Amazon forest, or we jump out of a plane, or we tell somebody that we love them more than anything in the world. We have an intense experience, an intense internal experience that then helps us to reshift our belief system based on that thought. If we have a new experience a different kind of experience that's very intense or we go back to a place where we move our bodies very intensively and we exercise like we never have before. That will do the same in a different way than a traumatic experience but on the other side of the coin. And then we can create a new belief, a new set of beliefs. But as an adult, to just try and think our way out of this does not work. When we've got a social media stimulation environment, stimulated environment like today, to just try and think ourselves away from thoughts is not going to work because we're under too much pressure externally. So I've given you too much there. I know you asked me a simple question. I've given you 15 minutes, but I hope that was valuable. It was incredibly valuable, Craig. I love to unpack a couple thoughts that came through here. That was absolutely amazing. I feel that I understood part one, like the first step is to understand that we're constantly evolving. And then step two is the awareness of our life experience around us through the daily practices. We can be aware of these things, most notably through our peer groups, our, our body movements, our reading materials. These are the major pillars of our experiences. And if we're to be aware of those and we want some change, then we can shift those things for change. So yes, but the thoughts part is what was really making me curious. So you talked about the thoughts and being able to ask high quality questions. You talked about childlike curiosity, level of flexibility, and ask better questions. So I can think about those things right now. We can sit and logically talk and think about those in order to actually make a shift in our foundational thinking we either experience some kind of trauma, which we may or may not control trauma. We can control, to some extent, intensity by initiating experiences like making love or a passionate kiss or a hug or a new experience. It's in that place that I'm very curious about if we can choose an intense experience or choose to have a new experience. Yes. And sometimes we need help with that, don't we? Because if we're stuck, we need a coach or we need a group of friends or we need, if we have the resources to go to a new environment, a forest or the ocean, or sometimes we need help to have that new experience, right? Mm -hmm. If we go for the intense new experience and we're in a tough foundational place, we haven't internalized yet being flexible or being curious or asking better questions. We're open to it. We just don't know how. 
So if I am interested in trying to create a new experience that's intense because I want to change, then I'm curious, how would I go about internalizing those three thoughts of flexibility, curiosity, and asking great questions? So I obviously believe in coaching enormously. I've always had coaches and mentors. And when I studied NLP, there are a number of processes that NLP teaches that allow me to change my sense of imagination and the quality of the questions that I ask. So I had a client recently that felt very low in his life, and he still is working on this. So this is not 15 minutes, and this is a long journey for some people. When we are depressed or when we're low or when we have anxiety and stress, there are many, 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 many wonderful practitioners around the world, therapists and coaches, psychologists who work over a long period of time with people to be able to shift our beliefs and our thinking. My experience too is that often this can happen relatively quickly for people depending on the severity of the difficulty that they're in internally. And so I had a client recently He was sitting in a depressed place, a difficult place, a depressed mood. I asked him to get into a perceptual position. In other words, get up from the sofa and to sit in a different chair. And then for him to be able to talk to the identity that was sitting in the couch, feeling depressed 10 minutes ago, what advice would he give to that old him? Let's call him Steve as an example. So Steve was sitting on the sofa feeling low. So I moved Steve to another chair and asked Steve to be able to talk to the old Steve that was sitting on the sofa that was low. Now that physiologically he was in a much more strong state and he and we took him through a hypnotic process whereby he could identify all the weakness in his past And now how he feels, he started to grow internally inside himself. And he took the old Steve and put it in a frame, a picture frame, and was able to burn that frame in his own mind, to set a fire to it and throw it in the ocean. And to be able to create hypnotic language with me, to be able to see that he forgave that old person and to be able to start anew inside his sense of real authentic self and to then be able to experience his thought pattern differently when his physiology is in a very powerful place, when his childlike energy was once again. And we started to set goals with him over the next 90 minutes that I was working with him. And he came up with three major goals from a place of physiology that really served his sense of identity and his powerful male energy. And so in doing so, we just created a 15-minute exercise that allowed him to be able to remember who he is. Now, that is NLP, and that's just a simple exercise that, that we deliver with some of our clients. Having said that, not everybody needs a coach to be able to do that. They can learn these skills They can go on a course or they can learn these skills themselves. Or indeed, we can just go for a run, providing we're not in as much of a depressive state to be able to get to that place. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you, Matt, is that intensity to me comes mostly 
from getting out of where we are and working with somebody that allows us to be able to support our authentic self to be able to move and shift ourselves. So it might be talking through something with a therapist. It might be talking through something with a coach. It might be moving our body more. It might be just signing up to an online course that gives us a different perception and allows us to be able to go and hug somebody or apologize for something. But often it comes from those three pillars to be able to surround ourselves with people that can have the skills to lift us out of this state or to be able to move our body in a different way intensively, or to be able to read something different, or visualize different. So it comes back to what we learned from our friends, Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen and Deepak Chopra and Anthony Robbins, that in order to change our life, we need to change our state. We need to change our bodies. We need to change our focus and change our language. So however we choose to do that is up to us. We need to do that at an intense level create a daily practice that can support our growth. Wow, that was amazing. I appreciate you going through that in great depth, Craig. And I get a kick out of you mentioned Mark Victor Hansen. He's a dear friend and I can't wait to tell him that you had referenced him. I think he'll be pleased to hear that. I mean, I've never had the privilege of meeting Mark Victor Hansen, but his books and Deepak as well and all of these guys inspired me 20 years ago, especially Anthony Robbins. I went to see Anthony Robbins many times when I was much younger And all of these people and many, many, many other speakers and coaches have inspired me. And now we've got so much on the internet that allows us to be able to access this information from all of these great teachers, either free or at a cost that almost everybody in the Western world can afford. You know, you can buy a book these days for eight pounds or four, ten dollars and get this wealth of information. So I'm not a huge fan of all of technology, but what I do understand to be true is it's changed my life. Mm, Absolutely. You've expressed so eloquently everything you've shared, and I'm curious, why did you choose this as your profession to help impact people in this way, Craig? I was a salesperson in my 20s, and I ran a sales team in my mid to late 20s. When running this sales team, I always say, Matt, I was promoted to the level of incompetence. (laughs) because (laughs) they put me behind a desk and they asked me to crunch some numbers and they asked me to look at the strategy of the sales team and involved in operations. And it just wasn't me. But what I learned by my late 20s was that my only true gift in business and in life is in communication. When I'm feeling strong and I'm clear, I feel that I have a great gift in communication. I'm a great communicator when I'm at my best. And that's the only gift that I really have in business. And so I realized that when I was 29, I left the corporate world and I left the sales world. And I ran a sales seminar for 23 guys at about £99 at about $125 a head. And all of these guys and girls got a lot out of the day. And then I realized that my career was actually in professional speaking rather than direct capital sales. And so I started speaking on the European conference circuit when I was 29. And I'm 50 years old now. So I've been very privileged to be able to speak around the world. And I guess I haven't kept score, but apparently through people I've worked with and stuff, I've been lucky enough to speak at over 700 conferences. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else and coaching, training, and speaking. And I've been lucky to set up a little charity along the way, 
my only gift is in my communication. Wow. So 21 years now of professional speaking, 700 conferences. Wow. Does anything actually ever make you nervous in public speaking anymore? Is there anything that... Yeah. Yeah? What does that? Absolutely. I know baseball and American football and basketball, you know, ice hockey, I believe four biggest sports in the United States. But in England, as you know, that we are addicted to cricket and tennis and football and soccer. So we have slightly different sports. But there was a wonderful cricketer called Vivian Richards, Viv Richards. And he played for the West Indies, I think in the 80s, you know, maybe into the 90s. But he was an idol of mine, a guy called Viv Richards. I think it was Viv Richards and a number of the cricketers at that time used to be interviewed about, do they get nervous before they go into bat? And he said, the day that you stop getting nervous, you can't play anymore. You have to be nervous because nervous is just, he didn't say this, I don't think, but this is what I get from it. Nervous is just excitement in disguise. So when I'm speaking in front of a large audience, the nerves are absolutely there. And even after hundreds of speeches, I'm a lot less nervous than I used to be. And I'm not nervous when I run a workshop anymore. But the nerves before something new, when it's new to me or a new audience, I, like all of us, I'm so passionate to serve that I do get nervous. And I do feel a real responsibility to be able to serve that audience. And so there are elements of my nervousness before I go out to bat, before I stand in front of people and serve them. I do my best to change those nerves into positive excitement. And in the early days, that was harder to do when you're in front of a thousand people. But now it's a lot easier to do. So I guess it's a different kind of nervousness. Absolutely. I'm thinking about this through a filter of if you're on stage and it's hardwired into your brain now, this curiosity in the moment, this flexibility of whatever happens, happens, and I'm going to go with it. I'm going to love it. And I'm going to play with it. Anything that can happen, your microphone goes off, all the electricity goes off, someone's cell phone goes off in the front row. I mean, those are all chances that maybe would throw the rookie speaker off. But when those things happen, when you're on stage, how does Craig, the professional, how do you play with that? Or how do you maintain curiosity in some circumstance like that? I believe that all of us have enormous wisdom inside us. And I've learned over the years to trust that wisdom. And it's not my wisdom. It comes from my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and beyond. And it comes from everybody that I meet all over the place, all over the world. I meet lots of different people who give me knowledge. And spiritually, I see that I'm passing on this knowledge that other people have given me my school teachers, whoever it is that have given me their pearls of wisdom. So I always trust my body and my mind and my heart to be able to speak where, wherever I need to. So I don't have any notes. I don't have any slides. And I'm fortunate to have worked with audiences for seven days in a row. And I don't have notes because it's all about the audience. It's not about me. I just do my best to be able to tap in and ask questions of the audience and involve the audience as much as I can. Right or wrong, Matt, and this has sometimes got me into deep water on stage, I turn up, I know what I'm going to say for the first five or ten minutes at the most, and then I really feel what's right for me to share. I know my structure, so if you ask me to speak for 
the couple of hours I can. I know that I want to speak on intention and purpose, our needs and our identity and our beliefs and values. I know I want to speak on that, but that's all I know before I step on stage. So it then prepares, prepares me for any eventuality that happens in the audience. And once, just quickly, I had an experience where I was speaking in a local town to where I live called Weybridge in Surrey, and there was a fire alarm in the conference and we all had to get out of the conference hall. I had to carry on the speech on the grass outside. What? I was very, I was very lucky. Yeah, and I was very lucky to speak in India many years ago in Mumbai. And I was in the conference room and there were lots of people, I don't know, six, seven hundred people in attendance. And 15 minutes or 20 minutes before I was due to speak, they said, you're only going to speak in an hour's time and you're going to speak outside. So... <laughs> So as you know, and I'm sure you've had a lot of this with your work, Matt, an enormous amount is we have to be flexible. Absolutely. Every day, every time. And you said something really profound that I feel, I feel I've recently made this shift. And I'm 46 now. I've recently made the shift in the last few years where you said that you know your first five or 10 minutes of what you're going to begin with. And then you follow your heart, mind, your body with where the audience might take you, where the energy might take you. And I'm curious, with such a very esteemed career with 700 appearances at conferences, was there a time when you could consciously say that I used to try to memorize notes in the beginning, it was all about my speech, and then eventually you shifted to focusing on the people. Was there a time when you made that connection? Yes. So it was after about 50 speeches, I think. And the first 50 speeches, it was all about me. And it was me trying to find significance. It was me trying to prove that I was enough. It was me trying to see if I could earn some money from speaking. And it was all about me. It wasn't about the audience. I tried to build presentations and use multimedia presentations. And I just was in the completely the wrong place. I wasn't serving. I was trying to serve myself. And all I wanted was the applause at the end of it. And then a gentleman was in the audience who was a professional speaker that was experienced at the time. I'd been speaking for maybe a year and he'd been speaking for 10 or 15 years. And he gave me that feedback. And he said, what you have just delivered is all about you. And it's not about anybody else. And he said, you're here to serve the audience, not yourself. And it really struck me. That was huge for me. From that moment on, I really learned a lot. I was in the Professional Speakers Association of the UK for a number of years when I started speaking. And though they also taught me at the beginning about platform dynamics, how to serve in that way. But that was a salient moment in my life. The second piece, I guess, that was huge for me was starting the charity and visiting the Amazon and learning from remote communities who live life in the moment, in the present moment, rather than having a script to life. And so being in the Amazon and very lucky to spend time with the natural community in the heart of the Ecuadorian part of the forest and being in Burkina Faso in West Africa with the Moshi communities and really learning from them. That just humbles humbled me because I realized wow. all of a sudden I wasn't as different or as special or as important as I thought I was. And that started my spiritual journey to understand that I actually am very insignificant. My dad gave me something many years ago, which stays with me, is that our planet 
if you take the whole universe, just this one universe, our planet is only a grain of sand on a normal size beach. So if you imagine a beach, a normal size beach in California or in Portugal or wherever, a normal size beach, and how many grains of sand are on that beach? This planet is only one grain of sand on the beach of the universe. And I am only a speck of dust on that grain of sand, not even that big. So I am uniquely insignificant in the universe. (laughs) And so, you know, when I look at things like that, I need to get over myself. And I understand that understand that I, I just need to trust my heart and my soul. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Because at one level, I'm very, very insignificant. And at another level, we're all very important. We're amazing creatures. Wow. Well, Craig, I kind of get a little goosebump there thinking about how insignificant we are in the universe. That makes me feel humble. I think it's a perspective of gratitude that I'm here, that I'm here to try to contribute something to the world. But I appreciate that you've shared that. You remind me of a story. I've only spoken with one other person on the show who's ever been to the Amazon. Her name was Marsha Martin, and she shared a great story about traveling there. So what was your experience? If you could take a couple minutes here and share how you got there, what was your experience when you were in the Amazon? I was on a course in India and I met a lady called Satya who invited me with another Indian gentleman to be go and visit for one week a remote community in the heart of the Ecuadorian part of the Amazon in Ecuador. And we traveled there and I spent a week with an Atua community along the Pastasa part of the Amazon River. And this was new to me. And I just sat there for seven days and learned a little bit about their shamanic practice. And we sat with a shaman and took part in their blessings and their tobacco blessings and their tea ceremonies at night and just learned about their thoughts and their beliefs and their way of life and visiting a very spiritual tree in the forest, which is the second largest tree in the world behind the Sequoia Redwood called a Kapok tree. And it stands 300 feet tall. For the Atua people, this is the most spiritual tree in the forest. And I believe that some of their elders, their ashes get scattered when they pass away around and inside this tree. And I sat with that and I, my mom passed away when I was 18 years of age. And I only visited the Amazon when I was 35. And so I wasn't allowing myself to grieve when I was in my 20s properly. I wasn't willing to to understand that my mom had died. And when I was in the Amazon, I sat in front of this tree and I just started crying for mom. And that was 17 years after her death. And then I came back and started asking my dad about my mom's journey and my mom's charity work, which she spent many years working for the Red Cross. And so I then chose to try to carry on a part of mom's legacy by building a school in West Africa. And so when you go to an environment, I think like that, the Amazon is so powerful as an environment that it forces you to look inside. The Amazon is like the biggest facilitator of change, bigger than any speaker I've ever sat in front of, bigger than any coach, of course. So the Amazon forest engulfs you for the time that you're with her. And she just forces you in a lovely, beautiful way to be able to look inside and look at my fears and my difficulties in a different way. And that's my Amazon experience. Wow. Wow. It's a very powerful place, I think, the Amazon. Mm, Amazing. And it makes me connect another dot here where your love for service 
you'd mentioned your mom and Red Cross, and you mentioned at the beginning of the story that you've been involved and started a charity, and now you've mentioned the school. Can you talk a little bit about your charity now and what that looks like, Craig? Yeah, so I came back from the Amazon and I met a gentleman who called Steve Headley, who runs an amazing charity near London called We Are Trinity. And he's supported thousands of folk who have unfortunately become homeless in London. And he's supported those people to be able to lift themselves out of that situation, many of them, and to be able to find a new way of life. And in doing so, Steve connected to a gentleman that he met through his social work, who was a guy who was from Burkina Faso in West Africa, which is a country that's landlocked and sub-Saharan. And if you look at the literacy of the entire country, how many people can read and write in Burkina Faso, when you look at the Human Development Index that is laid out by the United Nations, Burkina Faso is in the poorest five countries on the planet. So if you want to do any work from a charitable perspective to support kids to alleviate their own poverty and lift them out of extreme poverty, then Burkina Faso is an amazing country to be able to start that journey. And I met this chap from Burkina Faso. His name was Philippe Wadrago. And when Steve introduced me to Philippe, Philippe was learning and he was doing a PhD in international development in London. And he had support, financial support to come over to London and to study. And Philippe went back and from being a boy in Burkina Faso with no shoes, no food, Philippe was in extreme poverty when he was a child. And somehow he made his way to London and went back to Burkina Faso with his growth and his learnings. Over the last 40 years, Philippe has become vice president of 150 schools. He supports 8,000 women around the country. He himself has built 12 different schools in the country to be able to support hundreds of thousands of people in Burkina Faso to alleviate their poverty. And so I was so inspired by this. I went over and visited Burkina Faso by myself with Philippe for a week. And I was so inspired by his work that I came back and we found an architect And I've asked Philippe, how can I help? And he said, build me a school building. And Matt, I was so green at the time, I didn't have a clue how to build a school. But I found this architectural charity called Article 25. And I persuaded their CEO at the time, which was a guy called Robin Cross, to be able to come to Burkina Faso with me. And Robin ran a feasibility study of vernacular architecture and to understand how we could support Philippe in building a school building that could stand the test of time. And so we came back to London, me and Robin, and Robin said that he'd support me. And the reason why he said that, he'd helped me build this charity. And the reason why he was willing to be a partner within this charity was he said that he'd never seen, even in areas of the world, that he'd built lots of schools around his career. He'd never seen a country in the desert that had such poverty and no infrastructure, no roads, no roads to speak of in the north of Burkina Faso, just dirt tracks, and that most of their buildings were built of very poor quality concrete that was putting the children in danger. And so he said, I'll build a school with you and I'll financially support you to be able to do this. So so we founded a charity called Giving Africa that was built on the premise of spiritual wealth. And so we believe in our work over the last decade that Africa can teach us just as much as we can teach Africa. 
And so it was a bringing together of their spiritual wealth and our physical wealth in the UK. So we took lots of different people to Burkina Faso over a 10-year period. And together with our architectural partner, we built a school and a vocational center for 800 kids in the north of Burkina Faso. And so it's been an amazing journey for me and an amazing experience. And what is very sad about this Matt, is that there's been lots of troubles in Burkina Faso over the last few years. And so we're at the moment, we're not able to visit the country at the moment and take groups. But because of Philippe and his community's strength and knowledge, they've managed to make sure that the school goes from strength to strength and their vocational programs that they run within the school, such as farming and sewing and solar projects and sport, are continuing. And so it's been amazing learning for me. So that's the charity that we founded. But I'm very humbled because things just fell into place and we were able to do that work. And there's so many amazing people that have so many charities around the world. So it's, yeah, it's inspiring. The people that do this work on the ground, they're incredible people. Mm. I'm so glad you could share that part of the story today, Craig, that we can highlight that we're doing good work, we're doing charitable work to serve humanity. And I wish that this was more part of the news cycle. Good, feel good, helping, serving stories like this. It's a shame that whenever I turn on the TV or social media, it's all about vanity or it's all about murder, death, kill, and all the bad things that are happening in the world. I think we need more of what you've just shared. This has been an amazing story. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I really, it's so great to talk to you because your questions and your willingness to be able to ask these questions, your energy, I feel that I've talked very fast and tried to get so much into this podcast. It's great sharing with you. Before, I don't know how much more time that we have, but before we finish, please may I share very quickly one more thing. Absolutely. Go ahead. I just want to say that I hold a belief in life that every human being has the potential for magnificence. And I think what the kernel, the little seed that is within us that helps us to be able to grow ourselves is to love ourselves. The more that we love ourselves, I get emotional this bit because it really hits me. The more that we can love ourselves and love the people around us, the better the world becomes. And I think All of the different complex systems that I've learned over the last 20 years come to fruition through this one simple thing, is we just need to love who we are. We just need to love ourselves. And all of the systems and strategies and speeches and coaching and therapy that we have at our disposal and all the books and ideas are so powerful in the environments like the Amazon and West Africa and India and all these amazing places in Africa and the United States and everything that has been created in our endeavor over the last couple of hundred years of being on this planet. All of these things, to me, they're amazing. But the most important thing, and please allow me to leave this one thought with everybody, is this, is we just need to love ourselves. I love you for saying it, man. And you've put on, I would say, a masterclass of storytelling and empathy and love and everything today. It's been amazing. Craig, if we want to find out more, what are the places that we can find out more about you and follow you, my friend? Thank you so much. So I have a website called craiggoldblatt.com. Craiggoldblatt.com. So that's C-R-A-I-G-G-O-L-D-B-L-A-T-T.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. 
Craig Goldblatt on LinkedIn. You can find me there. And we run workshops called Living on Purpose in the UK. And we run webinars and meditation sessions. And I speak at conferences and I'm just blessed to be able to help. And so everybody can find me at craiggoldblatt.com or at craiggoldblatt at LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Craig, it's been a real journey. and I've just been glued to this conversation. That was an easy hour. That was really easy to, <laughs> to listen you. to you speak for a while. Too. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, my friend. And Thank you. Know, you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt.